tonight, the title of our subject is The End of Evil. And what I want us to do tonight is to study for the major portion of our presentation a story that has confused many Christians. I'm referring to the story or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I believe that probably most everybody here has heard about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Let me just say that this parable is found in Luke chapter 16, and we know that it is a parable. It's not a story that took place in real life. Now, how do we know that? For the simple reason that Luke begins many other parables with the same formula as he begins this one. Notice uh, Luke chapter 16 and verse 1, just as an example. Uh, here is the parable of the unjust steward. And it says, And he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward. Now, that uh, formula, there was a certain, is the common formula or introduction that Luke uses for the parables of Jesus. And so we know that because the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which begins in verse 19 of chapter 16, begins the same way, there was a certain rich man uh, that we're dealing here with a parable. Now what is a parable? A parable is an imaginary story which has the purpose of teaching a fundamental truth. Now, the details of the parable many times are not real to life. But the lesson which the parable seeks to teach is absolute truth. Uh, I could give you an example of a story uh, that we have very well known today, the story of the hare and the tortoise. Do you remember that story? Uh, the day that the tortoise and the hare decided that they were going to race? Have you heard that story before? Yes, you've heard of it. Have you ever seen such a race in real life? Absolutely not. You know, but let me ask you, is the central truth that that story wants to tell real truth? Yes. And the basic truth is that it's better to be slow and persistent than to be fast and inconsistent. Now, the lesson of the story is true, but the details of the story are not necessarily true to life. So we're dealing here with a parable. Now, one thing which has thrown many scholars off as they study this story is that none of the parables of Jesus in the Gospels use proper names except for this one. This is the only parable in all of the Gospels that we have uh, of Jesus where a proper name is used. And that name, of course, is Lazarus. Now, how could this be a parable, say some scholars, when a proper name is used, when in none of the other parables does Jesus ever use a proper name? We're going to find in our study tonight that there's a very special reason why Jesus felt it necessary to break the rules of parables and to use a proper name in this parable. We're going to find a very, very important and significant reason. Now, let me say that the Lord Jesus did not invent many of the parables that he used. In fact, the Lord Jesus many times took the parables that were common in his day, parables that were used by the rabbis, and he would take those stories, those parables, and he would repeat them, but he would turn them, up, 
turned them upside down to teach just the opposite of what the rabbis taught. Let me just give you an example here. That's why I brought these sheets up. Uh, obviously, I don't have this parable memorized. But this is from uh, the Mishnah, which is a Jewish source. This parable was most likely in existence in the days of Christ. You tell me if this parable of the rabbis is similar to one that you've heard before. And by the way, this is in your material that you'll get at the end, so you'll have a source. It says, they parable a parable. In other words, they tell a parable. Unto what is the matter like? It is like a king who hired many laborers. And along with them was one laborer who had worked for him many days. All the laborers went to receive their pay for the day. And this one special laborer went also. He said to this one special laborer, I will have regard for you, the others who have worked for me only a little, to them I will give small pay, but you will receive a large recompense. Have you ever read a parable like that in the Gospels? Of course, Matthew chapter 20 and verses 1 to 16. Now Jesus used this parable, but he turned it upside down. You know exactly uh, what Jesus said. He said that at the end of the day, when the laborers who had worked 12 hours went, and the laborer who had worked one hour went, they were all paid what? The same, because salvation is not by works, it's by grace. And of course, I'm sure that the Pharisees were deeply disturbed when Jesus told this story. Now, the parables of the rabbis all had an ending that you could predict, a predictable ending. Listen to the ending or the application that they gave to this particular parable. Even so, both the Israelites and peoples of the world sought their pay from God. And God said to the Israelites, My children, I will have regard for you. The peoples of the world have accomplished very little for me, and I will give them but a small reward. But you will receive a large recompense. Therefore, it says, and I will have regard for you. Very predictable. The person who works most gets paid most. But Jesus takes the story, he turns it upside down, and he says, eh, they work different uh, amounts of time, and yet at the end, because of the grace of God, they were all paid the same. Now, Jesus did this with many of the parables. I'm only giving you one example. In fact, probably most of the parables that Jesus used were known in his day. In fact, the story of the rich man and Lazarus was known in his day. Flavius Josephus makes that very clear. In a little while, I'm going to mention a little bit more about that. Now, it's important for us to realize to whom this parable is addressed. Go with me to chapter 16, and let's read verse 14, the immediate context of this parable. Jesus is speaking to a particular group. It says there in verse 14, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Who were the particular individuals who were there listening to these parables of Jesus? It was the Pharisees. Now you say, why is it so important to know that it was the Pharisees? Well, we need to know a little bit about the beliefs of the Pharisees as compared with the Sadducees. Go with me to the, uh, actually the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 23, and let's read verse 8. Acts chapter 23 and verse 8. Here, uh, the teachings of the Sadducees and of the Pharisees are being contrasted. They were different. It says there in verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. 
but the Pharisees confess both. Now allow me to read you a statement from Flavius Josephus, who by the way was born in the year 37 AD, just six years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Josephus himself was a Pharisee. Now notice what Josephus had to say about the Pharisees compared with the Sadducees, and he basically confirms what we just read here in uh, the book of Acts. Here uh, is Josephus' comment from the book Wars of the Jews, volume 2. He says the following, by the way this is also in your material. They, that is the Pharisees, say that all souls are incorruptible or immortal, but that the souls of good men only are removed into other bodies, but that the souls of bad men are subject to eternal punishment. But the Sadducees take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the punishments and rewards in Hades. In other words, there were two basic teachings that the Pharisees had. Number one, they believed that the soul of man was inside man and that it was immortal. And secondly, if the individual was wicked in their lifetime, they would be sent to a place of everlasting burning or a place of everlasting punishment or torment where there was fire. And so we need to understand that when Jesus is speaking primarily to the Pharisees, he's taking into account the beliefs that the Pharisees had, the immortality of the soul and the idea of eternal torment in hell. Now, it's interesting to notice as we read the Gospels that even the disciples had become defiled with this idea that when a person dies they don't go to the grave, but rather they go uh, to uh, a certain place if they were good, a good place if they were good, or they go to burn in an evil place if they were bad. Uh, you remember, for example, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 49, uh, the disciples saw Jesus walking towards them on the water, and they were in the boat, and they said, look, look, it's a ghost. In other words, the disciples had actually adopted this idea of the Pharisees, and by the way, the Pharisees had adopted it from Greek philosophy, the idea that the soul of man by nature is immortal. Now let me say that this story of the rich man and Lazarus is the only place in all of the Bible where you get the impression, and I underline the word impression, the impression that man goes to a place of burning at the moment of death. There is no other text in all of the Bible that would even give you the foggiest idea that man goes to a place of burning upon death. The scriptures are unanimous that man will go to a place of burning at the last day, at the end of the world, but never at the point of death. This is the lone story that would seem to give that impression. Now, we've mentioned in previous lectures that passage of John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus says that the hour is coming when all of those who are in their graves will hear his voice. Now, according to Jesus, where was man at the moment of death? in the grave. Now would Jesus suddenly contradict his view in John chapter 5 verses 28 and 29 and say, oh by the way, I slipped up on that. Man isn't in the grave. Man goes to a place of burning if he was wicked when he dies. The fact is folks, 
the scriptures unanimously with the exception of this one passage which we're going to analyze very carefully and we're going to see that it not, doesn't teach what most Christians believe that it teaches. With the exception of this one passage, the Bible is clear that fire punishment will be meted out upon the wicked only at the end of the world, actually at the end of the millennium. Let's notice some verses that make this clear. Go with me to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 37. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 37. This is the parable that we already studied, the parable of the wheat and the tares. It says there in chapter 13 and verse 37, He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, what do the tares represent? The wicked, yes. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so will it be when people die. No. It says, so will it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So when are the wicked thrown into the fire, according to this passage? It is at the end of the age, or the end of the world. Notice also Matthew chapter 25. Time and again, the scripture emphasizes this point, but Christians will take this one parable, which by the way, you never base a doctrine on a parable, because it's not a literal story. But they'll take this one parable, the only text in the Bible that seems to indicate that man goes to a place of burning at death, and they'll say, this, we'll take this one, but we'll negate all of the rest of them. Doesn't fit that way. You see, you have to take scripture by the preponderance of the evidence. If you have a problematic passage, you have to analyze that passage to see whether perhaps we're the ones who are mistaken in our interpretation of that passage. Notice Matthew chapter 25, and let's read verses 31 and 32. Matthew 25, 31 and 32. By the way, this is speaking about after the millennium, after the thousand years. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Later on in our, in our study, we'll come back to this. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Now wait a minute, I thought that they were separated when they died. Is that what this says? The sheep and the goats are separated when people die? No. When? When Jesus comes in His throne of what? Glory. Notice what it says in verse 41. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So when are the wicked cast into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels? At the end of the world. Now, some people even go so far as to say that the devil is burning right now in the fire. But here it says, that they're going to be cast into the fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels at this time. And so, Scripture is very clear that people go to a place of burning. The Bible does teach the doctrine of hell, but hell is not when you die. Hell is 
at the end of the age, at the end of the thousand years. Let's read one more passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Actually, 1 Thessalonians. No, it is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 7 to 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 7 through 9. Here it says the following. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When is it that the wicked are overtaken by God as by a flaming fire? At the end of the age, when Jesus comes with his what? With his mighty angels. I could read many other passages that we, that we find in Scripture, but I believe that these passages are representative. And by the way, in the material that you're going to pick up at the end, you find many other references. Now, let me say a few more things about this story of the rich man and Lazarus Indications that this cannot be a literal story. The idea that this man, this rich man, you know, he wasted uh, everything he had while he was living. He lived uh, luxuriously, and then he goes to a place of burning upon death. And Lazarus, who had nothing during life, suddenly he ends up in the bosom of Abraham. I want to mention several things that indicate that this story cannot be a literal story. First of all, it's interesting to notice by Luke chapter 16 uh, and verse 22, uh, the following detail. Notice, it says, So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was what? And was buried. Did the rich man die? Yes. Was he buried? Yes. Now, let me ask you this question. Where does your body go when you're buried? Does it go to heaven or hell? No, it goes where? Into the grave. It says in Genesis 3 verse 19, Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You don't even need the Bible for that. I've done many funerals. When you have the viewing, where is the body? It's in the casket. It didn't go to heaven or to hell. It's in the casket. In fact, when the casket is let down into the ground, and the casket is covered with dirt, six feet under, that's where the body is. And then the body decomposes. You say, well, why, why are you mentioning this? For the simple reason that both the rich man who died and was buried and Lazarus who also died and was buried, in hell they have their body parts. Don't they? Let's read it. Chapter 16. Chapter 16. And notice what it says in verse 23 and 24. It says, And being the torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. Oh, the rich man has what? Eyes where he's burning. Now wait, how could he have eyes if when you die your body goes to the grave? There's kind of a discrepancy, isn't there? It says, and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger. Oh, Lazarus has fingers in the afterlife. Not only that, 
that he might dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. So the rich man has a tongue. And Lazarus has his fingers. And the rich man has eyes. Now if this is at the moment of death, and it's your soul that has been separated from your body to go to hell or to Hades, what are you doing down there with body parts? Incidentally, let me tell you something very interesting. There is a uh, Protestant scholar, maybe I shouldn't even call him a scholar because his book is just a total distortion of the biblical concept of death, but I would say a writer on Bible themes. Um, and I want you to notice he's caught this. See, many Protestants today are saying we can't use the story of the rich man and Lazarus anymore to say that people go to a place of burning after death. Even Protestant scholars are saying that. Robert Morey is his name. He wrote a book called Death and the Afterlife. On page 85, he makes the following admission, realizing that, that Lazarus and the rich man, after they die, they have their body parts, and if they have their body parts, that cannot be the soul that's burning in Hades. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, notice what he says. Everyone understood that these parables and dialogues did not literally take place. This is in your material also. It was understood that the rabbis used imaginative stories and dialogues as a teaching method. It was understood by all that these dialogues never took place. Jesus was merely using the dialogue method to get across the concept that there is no escape from torment, no second chance, and we must believe the scriptures in this life unto salvation. So says Robert Morey, who has written a book trying to prove from the Bible that the dead know everything and that when you die, you go to burn in the fires of hell forever. He realizes that Lazarus and the rich men have body parts. And if they have body parts, this cannot be at death because the body parts go into the grave and decompose. They don't go to hell. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, let's notice another passage that speaks about hellfire. Go with me to Mark, the, actually the Gospel of Matthew. There's a parallel passage in Mark, but let's go to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 29 and 30. I want you to notice that whenever people are going to hell, they're not going to the hell as souls, as departed souls from the body, whenever they go to hell, they're going to go with their whole body, so it can't be at death. Notice Matthew chapter 5 and verses 29 and 30. And if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Can that be a death? Can that be a death? No, because at death the body's not cast into the hell. The body goes where? Into the grave and decomposes. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So is it clear to you that whenever we go to hell, if we do, and I don't believe that anybody here is going to go, but whoever goes to hell is going to go there with his or her body parts. Is that clear? Raise your hand if that's clear. Okay. Can it be at death then? No, because at death your body parts go into the grave. Now that's one discrepancy which even Protestant scholars realize will not allow them to use the story of the rich man and Lazarus to teach that man goes to a place of burning at the point of death. There's another reason. 
Notice what it says in chapter 16 and verse 22 again. It says, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Where did the angels take him? To Abraham's bosom. Now wait a minute. Is that what Jesus teaches? Elsewhere in scripture, when God's people died, they're, they're carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom? I don't think so. Notice Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And let's read verses uh, 29 to 31. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other to take them to Abraham's bosom. That's the Boar version. Where are the righteous taken by the angels when they resurrect? Not to Abraham's bosom, but to be gathered with whom? With Jesus. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then it says, they will be caught up to meet Jesus together with him where? In the clouds. We will be gathered to Jesus. We will not be gathered to Abraham's bosom. That is the standard teaching of Jesus and the apostles throughout the New Testament. Jesus is simply using a concept that they had, which was popular in their day, to teach a tremendous lesson, get a tremendous lesson across. Besides, it's interesting that in this story, the rich man and Lazarus are carrying on dialogue. Here are two dead people talking to each other. Do you know what the Bible says about people who claim to be able to talk with the dead? Notice Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is forbidden by God. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And let's read verses 11 and 12. Actually, let's start at verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the what? The dead. How is it that Jesus would condone this conversation, this supposed conversation, between two dead people from beyond the grave? It doesn't fit with the prohibition that God gives in his holy word. Furthermore, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9 and verse 5, the Bible says, The living know that they will die, but the dead know not anything. Now, if the dead don't know anything, how is it that Lazarus and the rich man know so much in this story? If the dead are dead, Lazarus and the rich man cannot be talking with each other as disincarnated spirits in the netherworld. Furthermore, it says that this Lazarus was taken to the bosom of Abraham. Now, if the righteous all go to the bosom of Abraham, that must be some bosom. And of course, Protestants will say, now come on, the bosom is symbolic. And I say, oh, the bosom is symbolic, but the rest is literal, huh? 
See, you can't pick and choose. You can't say, I like this literal, I like this symbolic. The story is either symbolic or it is what? Literal. And parables are using symbolic terms, figurative language, to get across a tremendous truth. Incidentally, the bosom in the Bible is a symbol of tremendous closeness. The righteous do not go to Abraham's bosom. In a minute we're going to see what this story is really trying to teach. For now I'm trying to show you the inconsistencies that makes it impossible for this to be a literal story. But the, the bosom is a very close place. For example, in John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says that Jesus, Jesus is in the bosom of his father. What does that mean, that Jesus is in the bosom of his father? He's very close to his father. Uh, in John chapter 13 and verse 23, at the Last Supper, the Bible says that John the Apostle leaned upon the bosom of Jesus. That's why he's called the beloved disciple. In other words, this is not speaking of a literal bosom. This is speaking about an individual who is very close to Abraham. Now, let me just throw out a little idea to show you where we're going. Who claimed in the times of Jesus to be real close to Abraham? The Jews, and particularly whom? The Pharisees. Now, I won't go any further ahead right now. Let's go back to talking about uh, the inconsistencies of this story. Notice chapter 16 and verse 24. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger and in water and cool my tongue. Boy, if that isn't ironic language. Do you really think that this, if this is a literal story, it would help for Lazarus to dip his finger, the tip of his finger, not his finger, the tip of his finger in water, and then go down to the fires of hell and put the tip of his finger on the tongue of the rich man? Come on, be real, folks. The water would evaporate before it got to the tongue. And so this is not speaking about a literal event. This is irony. This is satire on the part of Jesus. Incidentally, lots of people like to add details to this story that are not found. Let me just read, read a few verses like many people read it. Notice verse 23. Uh, this is uh, the Stephen Bohr Revised Standard Version. Anyway, notice. Speaking about the rich man. And his soul, being in eternal torments in Hades, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send the soul of Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this eternal fire. Is that what it says? That is an addition by people to the story. They add, in fact, not once is the word soul used in this story, not once is the word immortal used in this story, and not once is the word eternal used in this story. And yet, Christians will make this into an immortal soul that went down there to burn forever. When those key words are not found in the story even once, they are added because people have a certain bias. Now, let's ask the question, what does the rich man represent in this story? There are five clear clues that the rich man represents the Pharisees. Now notice, first of all, uh, chapter 16 and verse 24. 
there's a certain terminology with which the uh, rich man addresses Abraham and with which Abraham addresses uh, Lazarus, or the rich man. Notice what it says in chapter 16 and verse uh, 24. Then he cried and said, what? Father Abraham. Notice also what it says in verse 25. But Abraham said, Son. So this is a father-son relationship. Notice verse 27. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, here's the rich man speaking again, that you would send him to my father's house. Notice verse 30. And he said, No, Father Abraham. So this is a father-son relationship. Who were the ones who claimed to be children of Abraham and claimed Abraham as their father? It was the Pharisees and also the Jews in general. That's the first clue that the rich man represents the Pharisees because he's speaking to Abraham as father. The second reason is because of the bosom of Abraham. Where did the rich man expect to go? Where would he have expected to go? To the bosom of Abraham. Why? Because he claimed to be what? Close to Abraham. But who ends up in the bosom of Abraham? Not the one who felt he was close to Abraham, but the one who apparently was furthest from Abraham. So Pharisee and Abraham would go together. Now there's a third reason. And that is that this man says that he has, the rich man says that he has five brothers. Notice what it says in chapter 16 and verse 28. For I have five brothers that he might, might testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. What does uh, the rich man want uh, done? He wants Lazarus to go where? To talk to his five brothers so they don't come to this place of torment. Now it's interesting, when you examine uh, the Jewish uh, religion, there were many different uh, denominations or sects. The Pharisees were one. But do you know that there were five others? There were the scribes, there were the Sadducees, there were the Herodians, there were the Zealots, and there were the Essenes. Now you say, can we be sure that those five represent the other Jewish sects other than the Pharisees? The answer is yes, because we're going to notice, in fact, let's go there right now in verse 29. Abraham said to him, they have what? Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Who were the ones who had Moses and the prophets? The Gentiles? No, the Jews. All of the Jewish sects claimed to have Abraham as their father. They claimed to be close to Abraham's bosom. They claimed to believe what had been written by Moses and the prophets. They had five brothers, the different sects. And there's another reason, incidentally, and we have to read it carefully to catch it. Notice chapter 16 and verse 30. This rich man believes in the immortality of the soul. And we're going to notice that Jesus didn't. Notice verse 30. Let's read it carefully. And he said, that is the rich man speaking to Abraham, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What is the rich man saying? If someone goes to my brothers from where? From the dead. They will repent. 
Does this rich man believe in the immortality of the soul? To believe that someone can go speak to his brothers from the dead? Absolutely. Is that the exact idea that the Pharisees had? Absolutely. But now I want you to notice something very interesting. The Lord Jesus directs people away from the idea of the immortality of the soul, and he directs them to the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Notice verse 31. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one what? The one rise from the dead. Now you say, why is that particularly significant? The one rise from the dead. Did you notice the contrast between verse 30 and verse 31? The rich man says, send one from among the dead to my brothers. Jesus in the next verse says, they won't believe if I send one who has risen from the dead. Jesus does not believe in the immortality of the soul. He believes in what? In the resurrection of the dead. Incidentally, this word, though he rise from the dead, is constantly used by Luke to describe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice, for example, what it says in uh, the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24 and verse 7. Luke chapter 24 and verse 7. This identical word, and it's translated with two words. Luke chapter 24 and verse 7. It says there, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day, what? Rise again. Actually, it's one word that is translated with two. Rise again. In other words, in Luke chapter 16, it could be translated, they won't believe the one rise again from where? Rise again from the dead. And incidentally, in verse 46 of Luke 24, once again, the same word is used to refer to the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, in John 11, this is not in your list, but in John 11, 24 and 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life when he goes to resurrect Lazarus, the word that is used for Jesus when he speaks about rising Lazarus from the dead is this very identical Greek word. In other words, Jesus is saying, forget that idea of sending one from among the dead to convince uh, the five brothers of this rich man. He says, they won't believe even if one should rise from the dead. Now we've noticed then, that for several reasons, the rich man represents who? The Pharisees. Now what would Lazarus represent? Well, let's notice chapter 16, chapter 16, and let's read verse 19 and 20. Actually, verse 21 too. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring, notice the, the terms, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Notice, table, crumbs, dogs. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 15 and notice something very interesting about a Gentile woman that comes to Jesus because she wants healing for her daughter. Notice Matthew chapter 15 and let's begin with verse 21. Notice how Jesus addresses this Gentile woman. It says in verse 21, Then Jesus went out from there 
and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he said to her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Interesting. Verse 27. And she said, True, Lord, yet even little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What does Lazarus represent? He represents the Gentiles. And so really, these are not literal people. The rich man represents the Pharisees. His five brothers represent the rest of the Jewish religion. Lazarus represents the Gentiles. I want you to notice the reason why Jesus uses the proper name Lazarus in this one parable and in no other. Do you know that just a short while after Jesus told this story, a man called Lazarus resurrected from the dead. Did you know that? We've studied about it. A man called Lazarus resurrected from the dead. And folks, that was the crown jewel of the miracles of Jesus. It proved that he was not only the Messiah, not only a prophet, not only a priest, but that he was God. Because only God can resurrect the dead proved his messiahship. It proved that he, that he was what he claimed to be. Did you notice that it says that they wouldn't be persuaded even if someone resurrected from the dead? Now what happened when Lazarus resurrected? See, if Jesus had not used the name of Lazarus in the parable, they would have never caught the connection between the parable and the resurrection of Lazarus. So he had to use the proper name. Now what did they try to do with Lazarus? And with Jesus for that matter. Notice John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And you'll see that these people did not believe, particularly the Pharisees. Notice John chapter 11 and verse 45. This is immediately after the resurrection of, of uh, Lazarus. It says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to whom? To the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. And let's jump down to verse 53. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Did they believe that Jesus was the Messiah when this man resurrected from the dead? No, they did not believe. By the way, who were the ones that had Moses and the prophets? The Jews. To whom did Moses and the prophets point? Let's go to John chapter 5 and notice that. John chapter 5. Incidentally, you can read in chapter 12 that they also tried to kill Lazarus. Poor guy. If they'd been successful, he would have died twice in a very short period of time. Notice John chapter 5 and verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of what? 
of me. So when Jesus says they won't be persuaded, even if one resurrects from the dead, he's saying they won't be persuaded that I am what? That I am the Messiah whom I claim to be, even if someone resurrects from the dead. And when Lazarus resurrected, he was proven, Jesus was proven right. And then notice verse 45 of chapter 5. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So here the Jews, they have Moses, they have the prophets. They have Abraham supposedly as their father. And yet, the one to whom Moses and the prophets pointed, they are seeking him to kill him. Notice John chapter 8, that puts all of this in a capsule. John chapter 8, and let's start reading at verse 37. John 8, verse 37. Jesus says to the Jews, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, see the terminology? You would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. In fact, in verse 56, the Lord Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What a discrepancy. Here Abraham, if he had been alive in the times of Jesus, what would he have done? He would have embraced the Lord and said, you're exactly the one I've been waiting for. But here are these who, who claim to be the children of Abraham and say that Abraham is their father and they're planning to kill Jesus. So are they really children of Abraham? No. So what's going to happen? The Gentiles who eventually accept Jesus are going to take the place of the Jews who claim to be children of Abraham but who reject Jesus. Are you with me or not with me? Now, Jesus in Matthew 23 and verse 33 said that the scribes and the Pharisees were worthy of hell. Notice Jesus himself said that they're worthy of hell. Notice Luke chapter 13 and verse 28. Luke chapter 13 and verse 28. Here Jesus is speaking about this reversal of fortunes. The Gentiles grafted in by God because they accept Jesus. The Pharisees and the Jewish sects are rejected as God's chosen nation because they reject the Messiah. Notice chapter 13 and verse 28. Actually, let's read verse 27 for the context. But he will say, I tell you what, uh, I tell you what I do not know. Where you are from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you remember that that was the expression that was in the parable of the wheat and the tares? So this is speaking about the same time. So there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and what? And yourselves thrust out. Is that an explanation of the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Most certainly. Because those who expected to be seated with Abraham are thrust out. Whereas those who did not expect it are grafted in. Let's read the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 8 and verses 11 and 12. 
Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Notice this. So clear. It says there, And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, who are those? Those who have been chosen first, the Jewish nation. Not individuals, but the nation as such. But the sons of the kingdom will be what? Cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and what? And gnashing of teeth. Incidentally, was Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish nation, burnt up approximately 40 years after this? The city and the temple were destroyed by fire. Has there been weeping and gnashing of teeth for the Jewish nation since then? In their many tribulations and sufferings. Yes. Notice Luke chapter 19 on this idea of the sufferings because of the rejection of the Messiah. Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying... If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your what? The time of your visitation. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 43, the kingdom will be taken from you and will be given to a nation that produces the fruits thereof. Like we talked about on Sabbath, the fig tree was cut down and will be thrown where? And will be thrown into the fire. John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown where? Into the fire. And he's speaking about the Jewish nation because in the previous verse he says, don't you think to say in your hearts, we are children of Abraham, for God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. So does this story really have, really have anything to say about what happens when a person dies? Absolutely not. Like many other parables of Jesus, it is speaking about the reversal of fortunes of those who claim to be children of Abraham but rejected Jesus, and those who did not claim to be children of Abraham, but by accepting Jesus, end up closer to Abraham than those who were his physical children. It reminds me of Galatians 3 verse 29, where the Apostle Paul says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, if the wicked are not going to be cast into the fires of hell when they die, as we've noticed that this parable has nothing to do with that, when are the wicked going to be cast into the fire? Well, let me just tell you the story. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20, very quickly. Revelation chapter 20. After the thousand years, there's going to be a resurrection, right? We've talked about this, the second resurrection. Notice. Chapter 20 and verse 6, actually verse 5, it says, But the rest of the dead 
did not live again until the thousand years were what? Were finished. Now, who are the ones that resurrect at the beginning of the thousand years? We already noticed that. The dead in Christ will rise first. So who must the rest of the dead be? They must be the wicked. So when do the wicked resurrect? At the end of the thousand years. And now I want to complete the story that I didn't complete last time. Because we didn't have the time. You see, we notice that God, before the second coming of Jesus, examines the cases of all those who claim to be his children. Because he has to show that they're worthy of being taken to heaven when he comes. During the thousand years, God will open the books to the righteous who are in heaven with him and to all of the angels to show why the wicked stayed behind and they'll be able to review the whole history of Satan and pronounce sentence in heaven. But there's one group that has not seen the justice and the mercy of God in its fullness. And who are those? The devil and his angels and the wicked. And so after the wicked resurrect, after the thousand years, there's this white throne judgment. Notice chapter 20 and verse 11 of Revelation. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. Do you remember the great throne in Matthew chapter 25? It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, that is those who had been dead, because they came to life after the thousand years. It clearly says in verse 5, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and what? Books were opened. Let me ask you, what is in those books? What's in the books? The records of what? Of their life. The photostatic copy of their life. Books were open. Are, are their lives going to be shown to them? Yes. And it says another book was open. Notice, books has the records. And what does the book have? Names. So it says another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written where? In the books. In other words, the wicked are going to be able to see the history of their lives. Do you think that they're going to have any excuse after they see the history of their lives? No excuse. Because it's going to be like looking in a mirror. But does a mirror lie? I'm not talking about trick mirrors now. Does a mirror lie? Listen, folks, you can look in the mirror, and if your face is dirty, the mirror is going to tell you the truth whether you like it or not. They will look in the mirror of their life and they will see themselves as they were, as they are. And when it's all finished, it says in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11, that every knee will bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. Who are the ones under the earth? Must be those who, who live in Atlantis. No, not quite. Who were the ones that went under the earth? The dead. Are the knees of the dead going to bow? Yes, after they resurrect. So it says everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth shall bow their knee, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then and only then, for the first time in human history, the whole universe is in agreement. 
that God has been right in the way in which he has dealt with sin and with sinners. There are no loose ends. Everybody agrees that God has been right in the way in which he has dealt with sin. And only then can God destroy sin and sinners. The Bible tells us, and you can read the verses, we didn't get to all of them, but you can read all of the verses where uh, it says that fire comes down from heaven, and what does it do? It consumes the wicked. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 to 3 says that they will be reduced to ashes, and it will leave neither root nor branch. Ezekiel 28, verses 18 and 19 tells us that even Satan will be reduced to ashes, and he will be no more. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 7, says that this earth is going to be melting with fervent heat. The world is going to be cleansed by fire. There's nothing that cleanses anything better than fire. The fire will consume and dissolve the elements of this earth. All of the wicked works and memories will be burned up. And then when the earth has been cleansed, it says there in verse 13, that God will make a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the wicked are not burning in hell right now. The righteous are not enjoying the bliss of heaven right now. The righteous and the wicked are in the grave, sleeping, waiting until the moment when Jesus comes, if we were faithful, he will take us to his heavenly kingdom for a thousand years. If we were wicked, we will remain sleeping until the end of the thousand years when the wicked will rise. And then they will be able to see the justice of their sentence. And they will, show, they will pronounce the words before the world that Jesus was right in the way he dealt with sin. He has been just and he has been merciful. And the whole universe is in harmony as to the justice and mercy of God. Fire will descend from heaven and will destroy the wicked and will cleanse this world so that God can make a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, folks, there's not going to be some corner of the universe where the wicked are going to be shrieking and crying out throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity because in that way the sin problem would not have been solved. There's not going to be some corner where the wicked are blaspheming God because in that case the problem of sin would never be solved. God is going to cleanse his universe from sin and from sinners and of the former things... Nothing will come to mind according to Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. So we have a choice that we need to make. There are two choices. It's so simple. Some people say, Pastor, I didn't choose to be born into this world. What guilt do I have? Let me tell you, you didn't choose to come into the world, but you can choose how you go out of it. You see, that's why you can't have an excuse and say to Jesus, I never chose to come into the world. And Jesus will say, fair enough, you didn't choose to come into the world, but let me tell you something. I gave you the option as to how you could go out because I gave you Jesus. There are two destinies. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid that debt. If you receive Jesus, you don't have to pay. Praise the Lord. Amen. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I praise the Lord because he has given us a way of escape. 
Let me just make one remark in closing. Some people say, what about the expression everlasting fire? What do you do with that? Everlasting judgment. Everlasting punishment. Those expressions are in the New Testament. Let me tell if I had time, I would show you that the punishment is everlasting, not in its process, but in its result. The wicked are burnt up, and there's no parole for them. There's no commuting the sentence. They remain punished forever because their punishment is death. The fire produces everlasting results. Are you understanding me? For example, when an individual is electrocuted in the electric chair, is the process of punishment perpetual? They're shocking him throughout eternity? No! They electrocute him, and the result is he remains punished forever, at least in the sight of the law, because he's deprived of life. His punishment is not the electrocution. His punishment is being deprived of what? Of life. I can think of nothing more terrible than being deprived of eternal life. Man, missing out on heaven? What a thought. Never existing ever again. Sit down and think about it. It's a terrifying thought, especially if you love life. And if you love Jesus. Being separated from Jesus forever, what a horrendous thought. You see, folks, not only would burning people in hell be a punishment, but depriving them of life, depriving them of their prized possession, is even a worse punishment. Let me close by giving you an example. When I was a kid, my parents knew exactly how to punish me. They, they didn't have to whip me. See, that would be the equivalent of hell, being whipped. Not depriving you of something, but giving it to you. They soon found out that there was a punishment which was far worse, and that was to not let me eat a meal. Or to take away the dessert. Oh, what torture. I would have rather have been whipped. Yes. I got my share of whippings too. Don't get the wrong impression. <laughs> but folks, being deprived of life is as much a punishment as it would be to be tortured forever. God is not a monster. God would be the devil if he tortured people forever and ever. Wouldn't he? What God of love would punish 70 years of sin with an eternity burning in the fires of hell? That's not the God I serve. I serve a God of love, a God of justice, and a God of mercy. Praise the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for having been with us tonight in our study. We love you so much because you have given us a way of escape. I ask, Lord, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will come close to everyone here and touch their hearts if they have not given their lives to, you, to Jesus. Lord, I don't want anybody, you don't want anybody to perish. You want everyone to come to repentance. But if there's anybody here that has not accepted Jesus into their lives, I ask, Lord, that at this very moment, you will come to their hearts and invite them to receive Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for having been with us in our study tonight. Thank you for answering my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.